Uh, wow, wonderful thing. Yeah, praise the Lord. Well, that was encouraging. We'll take your Bibles and turn to, actually turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and I'll pray because we're going to stick the lens of Hebrews again over Leviticus 10 so we can understand why God kills people. I know that sounds harsh, but that's what happens in this text. Two men bring strange fire and God deals with them like that. So we'll have to understand what the Lord's doing and why he did it. Father, thank you for this time together. It is good to be in the house of God. And we know the house of God is made up of the people of God. People you redeemed, people you've set free from our sins and made us into this spiritual house that Christ sits as the head of. So what a beautiful thing the church is. May we always take care of it and guard it be kind to it and appreciate it. We thank you for children who are coming up in the church. We pray for their salvation, Lord, at early ages, that they will truly learn to be worshipers in their hearts, Lord, at a young age, and they would bypass many things many of us have experienced because they love you and not sin. So, Lord, we pray for our children's ministry from the littlest ones from nursery all the way up, Lord, that you would capture their hearts at early ages, cause them to love you and walk with you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're going to Hebrews chapter 12, our text will be um, Leviticus chapter 10. It is the death of Aaron's sons. Um, not an easy text to, to read or study, um, but yet great truths in there. So, Hebrews chapter 12 lays uh, a lens over this text, in a sense. Um, you've heard me say this before, that particularly when you get into the law, and particularly uh, Leviticus, <laughs> you have to take the lens of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and put it over it uh, to be its commentary to see and help understand the crystal-centric nature of the book. So when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, the writer is summing things up, but he's desiring people to realize what they have and who the God is they actually serve. He is not some flippant God. He's not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God to say, oh, I love God, but then I walk in sin and, and live in a, un, an ungodly manner. The writer of Hebrews is trying to bring them back to the reverence and awe of a God who has the ability to be a consuming fire. Look at verse 25 of chapter 12. The writer says this, see to it that you do not refuse him, that's God, who is speaking. He's speaking through his word, he's writing, he's, been, he's challenging these New Testament Hebrew Christians who claim Christ, but yet they're struggling with going back to legalism and worldly things. He's trying to bring them back to the truth. So he says, don't refuse him who is speaking. God's speaking to you through the word of God. For if those for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turns away from him who warns from heaven. There's a warning, another one of these warning passages. Moses had warned the people. Many places in the Old Testament we see where God's servants warn people and they turn away from that. But they said, look, he said, look what's so greater is when God warns and you reject the warning of God. 
He gives instructions of how to come to him. That's what this text is about in Leviticus 10. It's how to come to God and what happens if you come a different way. There's nothing but destruction in the, in the Old Testament New Testament. If you come to God a different way than he tells us to come, for us it is through Jesus Christ alone, right? If we come another way, the end result is destruction. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So in verse 26 he says, And his voice shook the earth then. Well, he's talking about the Mount Sinai, right? Remember we're on the mountain and, and God's speaking and the, and the earth is, is shaking and there's fire and thunder and all the stuff that's going on there. He says, For if his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the moving of those things which can, that can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So the Bible's warning us that there's a day coming where he's going to shake the entire universe. And the only thing that won't be shaken is the spiritual kingdom of God. Now look what he says in verse 28. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Oh, the world can shake and tremor and administrations can come and go and all the fear-mongering they can do in the world. There's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Boy, I think the American church and probably the church around the world one of the biggest problems they've had is they've created a designer God and they want to come to God their way with their personality and all of their stuff. God is to be come to with reverence and awe. When the church loses its fear of God, that's that awe and respect and reverence for God, they begin to retranslate, redesign God into their own image, not us in his image. And this is what happened with Abihu and Nadab that we're going to see in our text. And verse 29 tells us what happened. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, with that introduction, turn with me back to the, the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm working my way through the Pentateuch. Here we come to the next chapter of the life of the nation of Israel. God has taken this nation out of Egypt. They were enslaved there. He freed them from slavery. It's a beautiful picture of freeing people from sin. He performed great miracles. He provided a Passover lamb that's, that's the only way you could escape death. You had to believe in the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorpost of your house. And, and there the death angel would spare you and life would be given. They brought it through the desert. There, there are seas that are split. They're passed through. There's armies that are drowned. And then they make their way to Mount Sinai. And they've had failures. They've worshipped golden bull calves. They've They've rejected God and gave up on him on the mountain while Moses was up there. But now God has said, no, I'm going to go with you, but there's going to be a way I can go with you. You have to do it my way. You want me to be with you? You want me, almighty God, to be with you? Then you have to come my way. Because his way is perfect, right? 
This is where you know someone's not saved is when they reject the one way to God. They're always trying to look at some other way, their own goodness by, well, I'm not like as bad as everybody else. That's, that's, that'll bring the consuming fire of God on them someday. So God says, look, I'm, there's one way to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show you. I'm going to take something that's in the heavens and I'm going to give you an earthly example of it so how you can come and have reconciliation so you can have uh, a relationship with me. And so the instructions are given for the building of the tabernacle and then all the sacrifice, sacrificial system. Was, we've worked so hard through this to see this all pointing to Christ, but it was a temporary, it was a temporary atonement, temporary uh, reconciliation to have a relationship with God, and it can be done repeatedly to forgive sin so it can hold off the wrath of God till the Lord Jesus comes. So Moses, one more time in chapter 8, says, let me show you what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to handle all these five sacrifices. And he works his way through the burnt offering, the sin offering, the grain offering, wave offerings, and so forth. And he walks them through that. And then for the next seven days, he has the priesthood repeat those sacrifices over and over and over in chapter 9 for seven days. And at the end of the seventh day, the Lord appeared in a great flame, the Bible says. And you remember the people at the end of chapter 9, verse 24 when they saw this, and the Lord came and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar, altar. And when the people saw that, they shouted and fell to the ground in awe and reverence of this almighty God. Well, now the priesthood is being handed over to Aaron and his sons. Chapter 8, Moses showed them how to do it. Chapter 9, now they're doing it. Chapter 10, I don't think... I, I, for a while I thought, well, maybe this happened a little later after my study this week. I think it happened on the day. On the day the priesthood began to take over, sons of Aaron failed to do things God's way. Point number one, if you have notes there, the reaction of our holy God to strange fire. Look at verses one and two. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire plans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, there's many aspects to this text and the death of Aaron's sons that are quite disturbing. It's clear that Nadab and Abihu were part of the seven-day uh, consecration, right? For seven days, they consecrated themselves, sacrifice after sacrifice, uh, away from the people. Here God was, what we talked about last week, but he was making the priesthood perfect, albeit temporarily, because Christ, later we see that Christ was made perfect, proven perfect. So he's showing that this nation of Israel could have these priests that can intercede for them, and they went through this time of consecration, offering sacrifices for themselves so they could be the ones who could intercede between man and God. And in this, they heard all of Moses' instructions that directly came from God. They watched Moses demonstrate the sacrificial system correctly, and they had a full week to practice this sacrificial system. And if that wasn't enough, at the end of the seven days, here comes God in his presence in their midst in a miraculous way with fire from heaven consuming up this, this offering and in, their, in his presence filling the temple again and they must have been awed at his glory. And think about this. The priesthood had the front row seat. 
They're all inside the courtyard. They could not leave. So it's difficult to know the motivation for their sin. I read stacks of commentaries trying to get my mind around this and thinking what men that I appreciate through the years would write on this. Some wrote that perhaps it was just a sin of pride. Because the Bible doesn't really tell us the the exact details here. It could have been motivated from just pride, where they let their pride of their position lead to arrogance. Leadership must remain humble. Because they will begin to think that they know something better than God at times. And so maybe it was just this pride of position. Maybe they were led by this prideful ambition to do something better. Maybe something different than what Moses was doing. Or maybe even what old dear old dad was doing, we could find something better. You know, when you get around, people are really into experiential stuff. And, um, and, and certainly our, our friends caught in some charismatic movements, it seems like there's always something going on, and they got to produce something more. I remember a young woman came to one of our churches through the years, and she'd come from a highly charismatic church down the road, and she sat in our service for a few weeks, and then I asked her, I said, why are you here? And she said, I got tired. You always have to be perfect down there. You always got to have something better. You got to be able to speak this or have this dream or have this or that. And you always got to one-up the next person. Otherwise, you're not religious. You're not good as everybody else. It's a sad state of affair within the church. Is it possible that Nadab and Abihu saw what Aaron did, saw that Aaron got to go into the Holy of Holies, saw this great work of God and thought, well, man, what are we going to do? And so they offer strange fire, something outside of the will of God. Maybe they were jealous of their dad's position. And they sinfully overstepped their role. Maybe they found that the seven-day repetition of sacrifices to be tedious, and they became impatient and desired to see what Moses and Aaron could see. It. And it's quite possible when we study this text that they went into the Holy of Holies. And I'll prove that to you. I think, I think that's what they did. That's my thought here. Somewhere where they were not supposed to be. Whatever it was, it was extremely offensive to a holy God. God was greatly offended by their sin. Think about Nadab and Abihu. Think about all they had witnessed. Not only did they see the presence of God at the end of that seven days of consecration... But they saw firsthand the witness, the power of God in ten plagues on Egypt. These men were there. We know it. We find their names in the record. They were there. (laughs) They watched God judge Israel, prove that their dead gods were dead and he was the living God. They watched all of that happen. They saw the spectacular Passover lamb and life that that blood of that lamb brought and how the death angel moved across the land and, and, and slaughtered the firstborn of the Egyptians and all of their livestock, and they were, they were protected by that blood. They saw all that. They really saw the gospel beforehand, didn't they? Can you imagine being Abihu and Nadab and sitting over the edge of the Dead Sea with the Egyptians barreling down on you, and God splits it? 
And you walk through on dry land. And then if that isn't enough, he, he drowns your enemies in, right before your eyes. They saw all that. I think even more astounding than all of that is Exodus 24 mentions them by name, that they were on Mount Sinai, they heard the voice of God, they saw the fire, lightning, and thunder, and smoke, felt the ground shake, and then were invited up with Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders. Their names are mentioned in Exodus 24. There they saw God and ate and drank with him. Wow. And you say, how come that kid fell away from the church? Or how come that family left the church? See, what's in the heart of man, only God really knows. But I think every one of us are believers and fear what can be in our hearts at times, if that's ever exposed. See, there's just no excuse. Humanly thinking, they had seen everything. They had seen the, the power and authority of God, and yet they still would not obey him. In the end, it had to be their way, not God's way. And I think this reminds us, brothers and sisters, no matter how great your experiences are, and people on our first church plant tell me that God came to them in the desert and told them to do this and all that. I watch those people die miserably, never coming to church, never loving God, never loving his people. I watch people all the time say they have these great experiences, and yet they can't get the gospel right. <laughs> So it doesn't matter how great your experience is. is in, in really what it comes down to, do you abide and do you see the beauty of the God's, God's word and its truth and realize that if it wasn't for God in his grace giving us his word, we would not know him. It is not through some experiential thing you went through. It is because God graciously gave us his word. And that word may have come from a Sunday school teacher or your grandmother or your dad or someone who shared it with you, but they shared the word of God with you. Look at the end of verse 1. I think this statement sums it up. It says, which he had not commanded them. Right there. That's why they died. That's exactly why they died. They did what God did not command them to do. You want to die? Reject God's word. <laughs> Do it your own way. Come to God your own way. Make up your own thing, and you will die eternally. It's the mark of the unsaved, isn't it? See, God's word through Moses was abundantly clear. I mean, after studying Leviticus like I've been doing, I have just really have appreciation for it. And, and I remember reading it and reading it before I've ever preached it verse by verse like this. I thought, okay, it's, just, it's very repetitive. Okay, come on, Scott, stay awake. <laughs> You know, hang on, we can get to numbers pretty soon. But now you look at this book and you go, he repeats this over and over so there's no doubt what he wants man to do. <laughs> James 4.17 says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is it's sin. And this is what happened to them. Well, what exactly did Nadab and Abihu do here besides rejection of the commandment of God? And why was it so sinful that it brought immediate death sentence by God himself? Well, look at verse 1. It says they took their respective fire plans and they 
after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. There's many details here that we have to flush out of the sin of Nadab and Abihu. But basically it comes down to this rebellious act. And, and this rebellious act most likely took place in the morning because verse 16 says they haven't eaten the sin offering yet. So that would be something they would do later in the day. So most likely they got up in this rebellious act. They, they went through part of the ritual that God had given them because, because the offering is found on the altar. But instead of finishing that out, they chose it somewhere. They, so they did partly way. They looked at what God wanted them to do partly. And then they deterred in some place. And they end up offering strange fire. The fire is called strange. And the reason it's called strange is because it was not started on the altar of the burnt offering. Meaning the fire was not associated with the atoning, redeeming work of sacrifice. It was a, fi- it was a different fire. It didn't come from the altar where redemption and reconciliation were granted temporarily. But granted at that altar, they brought fire from somewhere else. They tried to cleanse sin from something other than God. <laughs> wow. That'll land you in hell in a hurry, won't it? So the fire from the altar, from the burnt offering, that was sacred because God started it. Chapter 9, verse 24, that fire comes down and consumes that offering and lit that fire. And that fire remained lit. And when they moved the tabernacle, they moved that fire with them. Now, the fire that Nadab and Abihu had was their own making. Hmm. What a difference between the fire of God and the fire of man. (laughs) What a difference. Fire of God will save you in one aspect. We receive the baptism of fire, purification. He, He brings us into his family through Jesus Christ alone, and he purifies us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he has another fire that's judgment. Man's fire is just dangerous. It's just destructive. Notice there was also use of fire pans and incense. And they're improperly used. When you said in this passage, they're, they're using them in an improper way. They're taking something God gave and they're using it wrong. Can I, do I have to make illustrations for that? <laughs> a pulpit that gets used in a wrong way. Music that gets used in a wrong way. A building gets used in a wrong way. You take what God gives and you use it in a wrong way. And this was an improper way that God wanted these fire pans and this incense to be used. And God had commanded Moses, who commanded Aaron, how this was supposed to be done. And there was no, there was, they did not consult Aaron or Moses. So it seems they were also in a place where they shouldn't have been. They're in part of the tabernacle they should not have been. And because of that, they had this incense in the open court, not in the golden altar where it was commanded to be. So now the incense, where God said to put the incense and have it burning, they got it in a different place because they had another plan. And the Lord had commanded neither that time or that place nor that manner for that to be done. And as I think about this from an application standpoint, I wrote, when our 
when the desires of the sinful heart attempt to gain authority over God's word, we become blind to his truth and his authority. And I mean, right now, we have a church in America just cut their Bibles up. You know, well, that doesn't work. Let's take that out. Well, that, that's certainly not going to get them here. Let's take that out. See, that's what happens. The sinfulness in the heart starts to reject the authority of God's word. And now we have nothing to stand on. We stand on sand, not on a foundation. And the first storm is going to come along and burn you and destroy you. See, little matters at that point. When you get to that point when the sin of the heart takes over, then things like education and position and privilege, they're not sufficient enough to keep you from sin. And you go, how does that guy fall? I mean, how many times have we in ministry seen men of great study fall? You go, how does that happen? How does a guy who goes to Bible school and seminary and, and pastors a church for years fall into sexual sin and, and, and destroy, in a sense, humanly, the, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Sin got in the heart. And it was easy to tell everybody else their sin and they wouldn't deal with it. These men saw God and ate with him. Alexander McLaren, I like him, he's a Scottish creature from the 1800s, from my people. He said this on this text, a little difficult to word it, but listen to what he says. He said, our censors are often flaming with strange fire. How much, so how much so-called Christians worship glows with self-will or with partisan zeal? When we seek to worship God for what we can get, when we rush into his presence with hot, eager desires, which we have not subordinated to his will, we are burning strange fire which he has not commanded. That's, I think, where the American church is at today in so many places. Well, Satan, he likes fire too. Revelations during the end times in 13, 13 says he performed great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth, and in the presence of men. He likes fire, but he uses it for a different way. He's, he's there to deceive. He's an angel of light, right? He's disguised himself. But God sees all this stuff, doesn't he? I think one of the little phrases, little prepositional phrases in verse 1, look at it with me. It says, before the Lord. This was all done before the Lord. They offered strange fire before the Lord. Isn't that his all Almighty, omnipresent, omniscient God watching and seeing everything. We see great passages of forgiveness and confession and repentance like David's in Psalms 51. Is, he says, my sin is ever before you. <laughs> Hebrew uses a word that we often translate in English. We say it is before him. The word is his face. It is before his face. So past, present, and future all are always before the face of God. He is not bound by time. Everything from all of eternity is right in his face. He sees all things. And guess what he saw? He saw Nadab and Abihu clearly, and it was done in his presence. Now it's possible, 
as I alluded to earlier, that Nadab and Abihu dared to pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And maybe in this attempt to offer strange fire before the Ark of the Covenant, where God was dwelling. Maybe they thought, well, well, Aaron got to go in there. Dad got to go in there. Maybe we can go in there. Maybe we can one-up this. Maybe we can take something out of our own account and go in there before him. Maybe they thought, look, we're consecrated now. We went through the seven days. We've been made perfect now. Maybe we can enter in the presence of God without a mediator. Ooh, there's the word right there. They went in without a mediator. I've talked to men down through time for quite some time. They said, well, when I get to heaven, I can have it out with God. I can, we think we can work through this. So you're going on your own. <laughs> Whew. Let me just stand back here. This all started um, because two men wanted to go into the presence of God. And this is why I think, this is why I think they actually went into the Holy of Holies Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, the whole day of atonement is started with a new, uh, another piece of instruction given, I think, because of this day. Uh, Leviticus 16, 1 and 2, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall never enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now I'll tell you what, it doesn't take you long to kind of think about what that scene must have looked like in the Holy of Holies and a desiring to be there. But God said that's not where you're supposed to be. Don't come to me at any time, I want you coming once a year. And you'll come stripped down. And we'll get into this more as that comes along. You'll come in stripped down and you'll come in with the blood of a substitute. And you'll do this one, one time a year. So this is why I think they actually got into that. I think they went into the Holy of Holies. My, my thoughts. Verse 2, back in chapter 10. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord. That's where he was dwelling. And consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Well, last week we saw that there were six places where we saw in the scriptures where fire comes down from heaven in a very positive way, and it all marked the presence of God. But there's another six places, at least, <laughs> where God comes down in fire, not to just show his presence, but to bring great judgment. This is one of them. This is one of the six. But there's several of them. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1 he shows up in fire and consumes all kinds of people because they were complaining. Go read that text when you're not happy with whatever's in your house or your house or whatever else you're, you're complaining about. Go read that one. That was because they were complaining. Then Korah's rebellion, not only does he open up the earth and swallow a bunch, but Numbers 16.35 says, fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering incense. Uh-oh, they picked up on Abihu and Nadab's wrong fire, their strange fire. And he wipes them out. And then one of my favorites, I have to be careful, this is, I'm not trying to be morbid. 2 Kings chapter 1, you remember this text, Elijah, Ahazai, Ahazah, A-I on the end of it, uh, wants Elijah to come appear before him. And Elijah doesn't want to go. 
And God doesn't want him to go, and so he says, don't go with him. And, he's in, and so Ahazi sends this, these leaders, right? And, they, and he has 50 men to come get Elijah to bring him before And every time these 50 men come and try to take Elijah with them to the king in his presence, God zaps them all with a fire and kills them all. And you think that would stop you, but now another leader with 50 more guys shows up, and the exact same happens to him. And when we read that text, it's, it's, it's quite comical in, in some ways and pretty sad in other ways. But the third guy falls on his knees and says, please, please, don't do it to me. Just come with me. And God says, go with him. He humbled himself. So, so this is just one of six, six times that we see this happen. Because God's very serious about when you don't do things his way. Now, now look, let me make sure. I want to make sure because there might be new believers in here and trying to get their mind around God and stuff. We have a very extremely gracious God. Probably all of us, if we're honest, deserve the fire from heaven in the judgmental way, don't we? I mean, if we really got what we deserved, we're crispy critters. But God's grace spares us from that, and that's really what is here. Come to me my way, and I will forgive you. I'll forgive the people. I will hold off my wrath. You won't see my fire of judgment. You'll see my fire of my presence, and you'll enjoy my presence. Do it my way. This is actually a very gracious text, because if the nation follows these two men, and God does not stop those two men from coming with strange fire and doing it their own way, a whole nation's going to follow them, and they're all going to die. And so, really, the death of these two men is extraordinarily gracious of God in some ways. Now, the Bible teaches us that he'll even judge our works with fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Did we do it from God? Did we do it for Christ? Did we do it for ourselves? That'll be judged. But it's no joke when it comes to fire in Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 says his eyes are like flaming fire when he comes to judge This one who we love, who is the shepherd of the sheep, who is kind and tender and takes us up in his arms and loves us and brings us to the Father, is also a lion, isn't he? With flame-throwing arrows from his eyes. (laughs) Let me get your, your mind around that. Man, he deals with sin. So the eyes of the Lord are the searching, discerning judgment of God. Again, McLaren and I think this is really this grace after McCarran brings this out. He says, the surface of sin was ceremonial improper. The heart of it was flouting Jehovah and his law. Meaning, the old word meaning, oh, we know what you said, but we're going to do it our way. But it was better for these two men to die and the whole nation perish, as it would have done by their example if they'd followed him. It is mercy to trample out, listen to this, Ms. McLaren says, it's mercy to trample out the first spark besides the powder keg. <laughs> That's probably a pretty good idea. Let's uh, put that fire out by the TNT right here. That's church discipline, isn't it? It's what we've been working through on Sunday mornings. When there's sin, put it out in your own life, uh, in the life of people you love. Let's work to put it out by the grace of God. There's a powder keg about ready to go off. It's this graciousness of God to show us that stuff. Well, I've got to keep moving here, but I think there's a true awe for God 
that Aaron has now coming from here. And I think he realized that God looked into his own heart and he, he felt overwhelmed. And I think that's going to come out in the next few verses here. Two, our jealous God and, our, and a silent servant. That was my longest point. We'll get moving here now. Maybe. Three, then Moses said to Aaron, it, was the Lord, it, is, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored or glorified, your, your, your translation may say. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Well, many people and even some who claim to be Christians believe that they can come to God any old way. Any way they desire, do their own thing now. That's the... That's this new movement that seems to recycle so many generations. But the God of the Bible demands to be, notice in this passage, treated as holy by all who come near to him. If you're going to come into his presence, even as a Christian today, through the great mediator Jesus Christ, through the final, the greater mediator, the greater high priest, we still come in an awe of this God who loves us so. The most holy response we can have to a holy God is to come His way through His Son. And there is no other way. Because all other ways are unholy and God deals with them with eternal punishment. He says, those who disobey me will not see life but the wrath of God, John 3.36. But notice he says, I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. Well, this means God displays His holiness But he also means that God's servants must honor him as holy according to his standards. And so this word honor or glorified here, remember we talked about this a week ago or so, means it has an idea of heaviness to it. There's a weightiness to who God is. He's not cheap. He's he's a God who spoke all things into existence. He holds all things Um, through his word. I mean, this is our God and our Savior we're talking about, this triune God. He is weighty, isn't he? And the focus must be on God and worship him the way he says to worship him. Opposed to what Abihu and Nadab did here is they focused on man with their cleverness and their insight and their wisdom. It sounds just like 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? so these alternative ways, they fail to glorify God. And pretty soon you end up with designer churches, designer Jesuses, designer music, designer messages, and all you've done is tickled the ear. God's not happy with this, is he? Remember, God guards his own holiness. (laughs) He guards it. And if he guards his own holiness, what should we be doing with it? And then look at this at the end of three, and I'm going to move on with some quick points here. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Isn't that amazing? What would you do? No matter where your children are with God, if they died instantly, what would you do? I mean, think of just what happened. He just lost his two sons. God himself struck them dead. I would think, humanly, doubtlessly, Aaron had all kinds of questions. And no matter what the spiritual state of his sons were, there had to be great sorrow that came with this. 
And this is difficult for us. This is really a difficult verse. I, I had to think long and hard on this as I worked through this. I thought, well, at this moment, somehow, all that Aaron had been through, as he'd, as he'd seen what God had done, and he'd been on the mountain, and he, he's been through these seven days of consecration, and he's watched holy God come now dwell in their midst. All I can think at that moment is the respect for God's holiness was more important to Aaron than to speak his mind at that point. That, that tells you how great the presence of God must have been. Because I don't know I could have done it. I mean, just think about that. Because if you read this, you go, well, he, we're going to see, he's not allowed to mourn. He's not even allowed to leave the tabernacle. And you go, isn't that unfair? Can the glory of God be greater? Because I think that's what's happening here. I think he's captured by the glory of God. And even the death of his sons, although it overwhelmed him, the glory of the Lord overwhelmed him more, and he held his tongue and didn't speak. Because he knew God was right. We see very similar things come out of Job. After the death of all Job's children, loss of everything he has, he sits for what? Seven days, is it? Seven days and doesn't speak. As he contemplates what God has done. I, I am not saying this is what we would do if the Lord took my children or your children. I'm just saying in this setting right here, it seems evident that the glory of God was so evident and so powerful and, and the demand for the holiness of God was so great that Aaron did not mourn outwardly. And I know that seems hard for us humans. But could, be that, could that be the glory of the Lord and can be that, excuse me, and can be that a great example that God wanted to show of the priesthood? Third, priestly reactions to the judgment of God, verses 4 and 5. Moses called also to Mishael and uh, Elzaphan. I've worked on that all day, I can't say it now. Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron, whose uncle is Uziel, and said, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them, still in their tunics, to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Well, these men were chosen by Moses to carry out these bodies of Nadab and Abihu, and, and they were relatives of Aaron's, but they weren't in the priestly line. Moses did not want to send consecrated priests to carry out dead bodies from the tabernacle, so he left the work to the relatives. Remember, the priesthood at this point, after these days of consecration had been made perfect, they were now in a position to bring the sacrifice for the people before God. And he did not want them to be unclean. He wanted that, and God wanted the picture of the priest to be the one who was clean, washed ceremony every day, sacrificed for his own sin every day, walked through the burnt offering, the sin offering, the wave offerings, grain offerings, and so forth, walked through all of those every day to, to be made perfect. And so God says, no, don't let, don't let those guys touch them. Let somebody else take them out. They need to be the ones who intercede for the people. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, 
Do not uncover your heads nor touch your clothes so that you will not die and that, he, and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of the meetings or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oils upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Again, I think there's a response to the sovereignty of God. Moses is instructing Aaron of his behavior during one of the hardest days of his life. His two sons are struck dead. They're under the judgment of God, and he's not allowed to mourn in the slightest way. God doesn't want him to do that at this point. And I don't think this is true for us, but it's an example that God's setting through the priesthood here. He wants to show the deadliness of sin and wants people to know that God has provided a way so they don't have to die. Now the priests were to be those who intercede for God and really grant life instead of death. And this included contacting dead bodies. And so this, this whole ceremony was about life, about having life with God, not death. And so he kept the priesthood from that and kept Aaron from the mourning of death, wanted him to be the picture of those of that one who was able to lead to life-giving reconciliation, although temporary, it still was life, wasn't it? And verse 7 says they're not even supposed to go out the door of the tabernacle. And I think it's hard to imagine the thoughts that must have been going through Aaron's mind as he recounted probably, here's where I, th- I, I thought long and hard about this. I think the only way he was able to deal with it was he probably realized how gracious God was to him. And he said, where'd you come up with that, Scott? Aaron built a gold calf for the nation. He has the whole nation worshiping an Egyptian dead God, and God does not strike him. So, so after, after a long thought process, I thought, I know why Aaron submits to this. Because in his heart of hearts and in his mind, he goes, my two boys got struck down for something less than what I did. And that resonates with me. That resonates with you, I think. We deserve the wages of death, the wages of sin, don't we? And I think he looks at this, and the Bible says here in this text, that the, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. He's been forgiven. He, so it, I think understanding the grace of God at this point keeps his mouth shut, and he begins to, to say, I'm going to obey God despite what I'm feeling, despite what I'm going through. And Aaron obeys God. And he's now set apart as the high priest. And so he must submit to God's plan and do it God's way. Four, the priests were to be teachers under self-control. Look at verses 8 through 11. All these things are coming out most likely from the problems that came with Abihu and Nadab. The Lord uh, spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of the meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual state throughout your generations and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Well, this commandment for the priest comes right on the heels of the death of Nadab and Abihu, and it makes you wonder, was drunkenness part of this? (laughs) I... I don't think you can definitively say this, but why didn't he add this before? It seems to be added here now after 
the death of these two men. And it's not hard. It doesn't take a lot of common sense to know how drunkenness can make you do stupid things. And that was stupid. Taking strange fire into the presence of God. McLaren again says this. I really leaned on him to try to get my mind around this text. He says, nothing has more power to the blur, more power to blur the sharpness of moral and religious insight than alcohol. God must be worshipped with a clear brain and a natural beating heart. Lips stained from the wine cup would not be fit to speak holy words. Words spoken such would carry no power. And so he says, look, from here on out, you stay away from strong drink. You don't bring that into the tabernacle. I want your mind clear. I want you obeying me. And you can take that for however application and however you want to flush that out. But for those of us in the ministry, we're very careful with things that would take away or dull our senses from the Word of God. The last thing I ever want to do is get up in the morning when i got to preach a text like this and say, I don't know what that means. <laughs> This is hard enough when you're sober <laughs> to work on. Can you imagine trying to handle the deep things of God and you're not self-controlled, which is what? The fruit of the Spirit. And so we must be careful with things that want to grab us and have control over them. Interesting enough, according to verse 8, God spoke these words only to Aaron. And this is the only time in Leviticus where he speaks directly to Aaron, not through Moses, about this subject. I, I, I think, maybe, the kids were drunk. It's possible. Now notice in verse 10 that the prohibition against the priestly drinking was so that they could make distinction. Look at this in verse 10. Make distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. So the priests needed all their faculties to be able to think and discern what was good and evil. And God does not want our hearts and our minds clouded with stuff. And you know, you can jump on the drinking thing or you can jump on something else. Adrenaline junkie. Do I dare say coffee? No, we won't go there. And you gotta, I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any labels here or items, but you gotta figure out what, what controls you. Is it the Spirit of God or is it something else? Because what it does is it, it mars an understanding of, of what God's doing, it blurs those things. We wanna know God's Word. I think sometimes people are just controlled by money, by all kinds of things, and they can't study the Bible, so they're so dependent on me to give it to them. There's nothing worse than that, that I'm trying to live your spiritual life for you. I can't do it. Hey, let's walk with God. Let's make choices that allow us, allow the Spirit at full room in our lives so we're not blinded by stuff or inebriated by something in our lives, some lust for something so we don't understand the Word of God. It also reminds us in verse 11, notice this, that the, the, the priesthood were to be teachers of the law of God. It's supposed to be teaching. So as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes. I think sometimes we think of the teachers as um, a, a priest being, being a teacher is overlooked. We think we're dealing with sacrifices all the time, but it certainly was a important part of the ministry. But the Bible, Old Testament, talks over and over about the role of the teaching priest. Moses, in his final blessing to Israel in Deuteronomy 33.10, says this, they, um, they, the priests, shall teach your ordinances to Jacob 
and your law to Israel, and they should put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. He's talking about the priesthood. They should teach Jacob, Israel, the law of God. When they failed to do this, the word of God said this in 2 Chronicles 17, 7, for a long time Israel has been without the true God, without teaching priest, and without the law. In a, in a majority of the uh, major, uh, major um, prophets and minor prophets, when you study those passages, you begin to realize God chastises the nation because of their false teaching priest and their false teaching leaders. So they're supposed to teach. And they're supposed to remove things out of their life so that they can, they can teach. Look, you want to follow the Lord? You want to go into ministry? You want to teach little children? You want to teach here? You, want to, you believe God's calling you to teach? You have to be dedicated to him. And I think if you want to have good morning devotions with the Lord, you have to be dedicated to him and say, God, what do you want me to remove out of my life? I'm, I am not mentioning anything. This is not legalism in any way. But if you want to know what God says, you've got to get things out of your life so you can hear him. And I think that's what he installed. Last thought. Um, five, God's priest, priesthood is nourished by God and ready to fast over sin. I think this is intriguing here, verse 12 through 15, then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving son, Eliezer and Ithamar, take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offering by fire and eat it unleavened besides the altar, for, most, for it is most holy. And you shall eat moreover than the holy place because it is your due and your son's due out of the Lord's offering by fire, for thus I have been, com- I have been commanded. The breast... Of the wave offering, however, and the thigh offering, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they have been given you as your due, and your sons due out of the sacrifice of the peace offering and the sons of Israel. The thigh offering by lifting up, and the breast offering by waving, they shall bring along with them offering by fire and all the portions of fat to present a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a thing perpetually do you and your sons with you, just as the Lord has commanded. Well, they come, they come over to the altar and they find that there was leftover grain. And again, this real, we realize that somewhere along this sacrificial pr- process, the sons didn't finish what God told them to do. Somewhere along the line, they came up with a brilliant idea of getting their fire pans, getting strange fire and trying to go into the presence of God, and they left the grain uneaten. So here, Moses is instructing them, Aaron, go back there and eat that grain. Don't take it out of here. Stay close to the altar. Eat it right there because it's holy to God. I, I, I thought about that. What an interesting thing. When you're in there for all these days, they've been in there for seven, now they're on the eighth day. God was supplying nourishment for them as well. And yet, this was holy to him. It was not to be taken out. It wasn't just to be for everyday use. This was to be holy. And it helps us understand that Abihu and Nadab didn't think it was holy enough to finish it and do what God said. and said they went with their own plan. But notice in those verses that the breast of the meat was to be a wave offering to the Lord, showing his sovereign control over all things. And this thigh offering was to be given to the priests and they were to be given to their household. And this they could take home to sustain their family, but they were to eat it in a clean place. Meaning if somebody died in their home, they couldn't eat it there. Leaven had to be cleaned out of the house and there they could eat that. Notice verse 16 and 20 just to wrap things up here. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it had been burned up. 
Now, now look at this. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the, at the holy place? For it was most holy. And he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord temporarily, right? Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should have certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded you. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When, the thing, when things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, it would not, it, it, it would, excuse me, would it been, have been good in the sight of God? And then Moses heard this and seemed good in his sight. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, after the death of Nadab and Abihu, Moses wanted to know why the family didn't eat the sin offering. Why they didn't eat Eliezer and, and Ithamar did not finish the portions of the sacrifice to the priests. But notice in 19, Aaron told Moses that it wouldn't be good for him in the sight of the Lord to eat at the sin offering right at that point. And I believe what Aaron was doing was that he was not allowed to mourn outwardly but here's what I think God let him do. I think he let him fast. Because fasting isn't seen by other people. And the only way, and at least in our household, where you know someone's, not, if someone's fasting is they don't eat with you. Because they look normal. Because that's what the Bible says. If you're going to fast, Jesus says, wash your face. You know, look normal. Don't be like the Pharisees that drag around and tell everybody they're fasting. I think this is what he's doing here. I, I think he's fasting. And I think Aaron has got to this point where he goes, I, I deserve to be struck by fire, and God has not struck me. I built a golden calf. I, I attempted to lead this nation away from God, and he let me live. I, I need to fast before God. And I think what happened where Moses gets on his relatives here Eliezer and Ithamar, I think they just followed Aaron's example. And I think the Lord said, that's okay. And you notice what Moses says at the end of the text, it seemed good in his sight. And I thought, Lord, that's, that's pretty neat. You were showing Aaron as this example. You didn't let him mourn outwardly. He was supposed to be this picture of one made perfect who can bring the sins of individuals in the nation to back to God, be reconciled with God temporarily, but he's able to do that so he can't mourn outwardly. He can't take his sorrow outside the tent. He must fulfill what you've called him to do in order to bring these people to you, but you let him fast. <laughs> you let him fast. There's so many pictures of Jesus Christ in there. As I, figure, as I finish this out, just think about the Lord Jesus Christ as, as he goes to the, to the cross on our behalf. He's carrying so much burden, isn't he? The night before his death, he's in the garden and he's sweating drops like blood. He knows what's going about to happen. Not, I, I don't, he's human, so the pain is going to be just as painful as you and I would feel it. But it's the weight of sin. It's the weight of all the things he didn't do that God would make him to be sin on our behalf. That weight is pressing on him. And yet, in silence, in silence, he goes and he offers himself up for this final sacrifice. 
He becomes the sin offering for us. And he's buried outside the camp. And our sins are done away with. All these things, we study here in Leviticus, all these events, they're all pointing to the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice, the greater tabernacle. All the stuff is greater when we see it in Jesus' eyes. Father, we've gone long here, but this is a fascinating text. It's a little overwhelming, Lord, when we start to break into it and realize how powerful you are again. But God, you have set a plan, and it never needs to be changed because you're perfect. And the plan in the Old Testament was lay down a picture, lay down a plan, lay down a road that's running towards the Lord Jesus Christ, running towards the cross. The whole plan was pointing towards that. And no matter who it was, Lord, who came to thwart the plan, who came to try to do something different, you would not be changed. You are an immutable God. You're perfect in all that you do. And Lord, there's times where you set the ultimate example of what happens when people come another way. They die. They're destroyed. There's judgment immediately that happens. And so, Lord, the application is for us. This is all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all your grace and mercy. You have provided a way through Christ alone. We now know how to come to you. We know what you did for us. You brought us to the cross. You brought us to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we come that way. But all who disobey that will fall under the judgment hand of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women, boys and girls, who hold to God's plan, not our own. And Lord, we would be bold enough, humble, but bold enough to share that with other people when we hear someone say, well, I, have, uh, I can come another way. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us to immediately to love them enough to know that judgment's going to fall upon them as fire fell upon Nadab and Abihu, knowing that judgment's going to hit them, that we share the way to come to God. Lord, help us to be bold for you. Help us to be a church that's bold in these times. Humble, because we don't deserve what we have, but bold to say, this is what the Bible says. We love you enough to tell the truth. Lord, thank you that you've given a spirit within us to be able to do those things. Strengthen your congregation, Lord. Strengthen those that believe in you and want to obey you, Lord. May we run with great joy and great vigor. Thank you for this time together, Lord. Bless these folks. Give them sweet rest tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.